if you've been following us, we've been talking about the purpose of the church. And we've been saying, why in the world do we exist? What, what is God's heart for us? What does he want us to do? Who does he want us to be? Um, why do we do this thing we call church? And, and the first week, we looked at our purpose. We looked at the mission of the church. What's our true north? Like, how do we direct and, and what do we recalibrate to when we get off course? And we said that Paul's end goal, he explicitly stated it in Colossians chapter 1. He said, my aim is to present everyone complete in Christ. And what that means is that he wanted to see every person on the face of the earth fully satisfied in who Jesus is for them. And to be this mature spiritual adult that looks like Jesus, that's following Jesus and inviting other people into that process. That's the end game. And then last week, we talked about the importance of vision. We brought three people up here who were breaking stones in the middle of a hot summer day, and they were just, two of them were miserable, and one of them had a big old goofy smile on his face. And we said, what's the difference? Why are you working with joy? And he said, because I realize that the job isn't just breaking stones. I see the vision of what this is all about, and I'm here to build a temple for my king. And that if we as a church can see the vision of what God is taking us into, who he's calling us to be, then even when it gets difficult, because Don't get me wrong, church, work, and life will be messy and difficult. It's a church full of sinners. We're jacked up. But when we see the vision of where God's taking us, we can work with joy even through the trials, even through the difficulties. And so as a visual aid, what I wanted to use, uh, Lisa helped put this this together so it actually looked nice. Um, This is a picture frame. And this will be a visual aid we'll kind of use as we walk through this series together. Um, And at the top of the picture frame is our mission. To present everyone complete in Christ. That we, as we look forward, we look up, we remember the target, the goal, the end game of what every single thing that we do as a church should be streaming toward. And then in the middle of a picture, what, that, that's the actual image, right? That's, that's what we're called to be. And so in the middle here, we want to put our vision. And we said last week, we looked at the first half of the vision, which is that we want to be a gospel-centered community. We want to be a, a group of people who are doing life together And in the middle of everything that we do and we say is Jesus. And the good news that he's won us back into a relationship with God through his death, burial, and resurrection. And that should be the heartbeat of every single thing that we do as we gather together in life. And that's why we actually use this logo here. It's on our church. It's on our bulletin, on our website, on the church itself. And and, and this pictures, this is the vision, this is the image of of what we believe we're called to be. A group of people gathered around the cross, which symbolizes who Jesus is and the good news of what he's done for us. But that's just, that's just half of the equation because that's just, that's just who we are. Like, what are we, what are we called to do? Like, we just gather together, right, week after week and watch this guy up front sing and dance and use his hands too much when he talks. Like, what is, there, certainly it's not just to be together. Just hold hands and sing kumbaya. Like, what is it? We're, we're together now, but what are we supposed to do? And that's the second half of the vision statement that we want to put forth. And that is that we are a gospel-centered community reproducing disciples of Jesus. Reproducing disciples of Jesus. And that's what we want to look at this morning. And to, to find where we get that, we want to return to our sole authority. That's the Word of God. So we go to Matthew. You're probably familiar if you've, if you've been in church long with the Great Commission. These are the last words that Jesus said recorded in the Gospel of Matthew right after he had risen from the dead, well, 40 days after he had risen from the dead. And he tells his disciples this, these, these words as he's about to ascend into heaven. And he says this to them. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And this is important that he starts out here. He says, all authority has been given to me. By, by who? 
by God, right? It says, all authority, I am in charge, and I'm going to come back one day, and everything will be put under my feet. I'm the king. So this isn't a suggestion. This is a direct order from our commander-in-chief. It's like when your parent comes to you and asks, would you please take out the garbage, right? And the teenager's like, nah, I'm Snapchatting, right? Selfie. I don't have time. And the, and the parent, what do they say? Oh, okay, no problem. <laughs> no, let me rephrase that. Take out the garbage, right? Mom, mic drop, right? Just do what I say. I'm in charge. You obey me. And so Jesus here, he says, Jesus, who has authority over all the universe, including you and me, this is what he authoritatively tells us to do. Therefore, because I have this authority, this is what I'm calling you to do. He says, go into the world Go and make disciples. Now, often we kind of emphasize the word go as the central command. It's not the central command. You want to get nerdy and get into the Greek grammar, which I know you all love to do. It's not go. It really would be better translated as you are going. You're going to be going. You're going to be living your life. But as you go forward, he says, this is the command. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. The the command, Jesus' authoritative, supreme command for his church is to make disciples, or simply you could say the verb disciple. That's what he's called us to do. This is what our our gospel-centered community is all supposed to be hubbing around, this activity, because it's discipleship that is going to lead us into presenting everyone complete in Christ. So a couple, a couple of things. We want to look at these words. If we were to reproduce disciples of Jesus, let's look at all three of them. First of all, disciples. What is a disciple? Let's, let's start there, asking that question. What's a disciple? What in the world is a disciple? Well, if you look at what it meant, when Jesus used this word, probably actually spoke in Aramaic, but it was translated into Greek. And the Greek word for disciple, it, it means learner or follower. So think like a student. And at the time in the ancient world, you had, these, you had some famous philosophical teachers or religious leaders, and their kind of group of people who were sold out to follow them, kind of drinking their Kool-Aid, those were their disciples, their followers, their learners. And in Jesus' day, the Hebrew language, they had a couple of terms that they would have used in their culture. And the word for the student they used was Talmud. And a Talmud was, was, a, was a student who would learn from or follow a rabbi. And you've probably heard that one. They call, his disciples call Jesus rabbi uh, in the Gospels. And so the Talmud and the rabbi were a student-teacher relationship. Now for us, in 2018, when we think of a student-teacher relationship, we're probably not thinking of the same kind of relationship they, they would have had here. See, when we think of student-teacher, we think of something like this, right? Here's this kid. You know he's up to no good, right? Definitely not paying attention. The teacher is blurry in the background, right? There's a metaphor there. And, and you have this, you know, the teacher's in the classroom. There's like 30 students, and they'll give them some tests or some papers, some activities. And really the goal is just kind of get through this grade without killing anybody. Just move on to the next grade, pass the class. Teacher's going to pass on some information to them. Kind of a casual relationship, not very intimately uh, involved in each other's lives. It's very different than what a Talmud and a rabbi's relationship would have looked like in first century Israel. You see, for for a a child growing up in the Jewish culture, they were often starting at the age of like four or five. They went through this intense training, and most of the children, if they were raised in kind of an orthodox home, they would have, by the age of 13, had most of, if not all, of the Torah 
which is the first five books of the Bible memorized. Most of our 13-year-olds can't even make it all the way through Leviticus, let alone have it memorized, right? You thought Awana was tough, right? I mean, you, you couldn't be able to fit all the jewels on a pin. These kids would need a billboard, right? And so these, they'd memorized, they already had an intense education. Then at the age of 13, a Talmud or one of these students could decide, I want to go further. I want to go more intensely into my training. And they would follow a particular rabbi. And they would say, I'm going to learn from him. And so they'd follow him, often leaving their family, their friends, going to a different location. And they would follow this rabbi, totally committed to his authority, to this rabbi's interpretation of the, the word of God. At that time, it would have been the Old Testament. And so they'd follow them wherever they went, totally committed, often through harsh conditions, following this, this rabbi wherever they went. In fact, Jewish tradition says that the Talmud, they said that they would metaphorically or maybe even literally have the dust of the sandals of their rabbi caked on their face because of how, how close they followed them. They went wherever they went. They did whatever they did following their rabbi. So when you think of a student, when you think of this word Talmud, don't, probably better would be an apprentice. An apprentice. Someone who attached themselves to this, this rabbi. Someone who, who identified with them, learned from them, lived with them, and eventually started to look like that rabbi. See, this wasn't just content information. This was not just like some curriculum. Where it's like 12 easy steps to become like your rabbi, chapter one, right? This is much deeper than just information being passed on. It was this daily experience of living life together, where, where, the, where, the, disciple, where the rabbi would continually stop and look at, the, look at the Talmud and go, why did you do that? And why did you say that? Why did you make it kind of be annoying, right? Like always pointing out, like, why did you make that decision? And then the, the Talmud could turn it on the rabbi and go, well, why did you do that? Like, I'm learning from you. I don't, why, did you why did you respond to that person like that? And they were constantly watching the way that they lived and the way they acted, learning from them. And the, the rabbi would challenge them to develop discernment. That's why he was constantly asking him questions, bringing him into owning this. And it was an emphasis on complete transformation as a person, not just giving them some knowledge. I was thinking about this, putting this where, where we live. Like, what does this look like for us? What, what examples do we have? And from about the age of 13 to 18, I was a disciple of Tim Keener. Okay? Never trying to draw attention to myself. Um, Tim Keener was my basketball coach at Cook Inlet, right down the road on K Beach. And he was this huge, terrifying man. And I remember my first interaction with him, I was a little scrawny sixth grader uh, playing basketball with the junior hires, and he was coaching that day, and it was my turn to go in. He told me to go in. I wasn't paying attention to him, so he grabbed me by my scrawny little sixth grade frame by the jersey and threw me into the game, right? So this is Keener, terrifying Keener. And over the years, I grew to love this man, and not just as a coach, as a mentor, as a friend, as a father figure. You know, often during basketball season, I would spend more time with Tim than I would my own father. I mean, two-hour day practices, long road trips, intense situations, constantly observing him, learning from him. How does he coach? How does he talk to refs, right? You can't call that. That's absurd. Absurd. A, is that an A, a B? 
And not just on the court. But man, how did he eat? What kind of food did he like? What kind of music did he listen to? In the car, always making us listen to copious amounts of Pink Floyd and Queen's greatest hits, right? As we drove down the Sterling Highway in his 2001 Ford Explorer, right? So everywhere he went, I'm just learning from him. And as you begin to spend that much time with somebody, what happens? You start to become like them, right? Your behavior starts to be patterned after their behavior. And Tim Keener had a central role in, in shaping who I am today, for better and for worse, right, as a human. And now, se- seven years later, after I graduated from high school, he was no longer my coach, I became a coach at Cook and Lit. And I would start a whole new batch of teenagers, convincing them, forcing them to listen to Queen in my car, right? <laughs> and, and Lord willing, shaping them into men who loved God and maybe one day would coach other men to listen to Queen in their car and love God and maybe one day. You see the pattern. And I'm sure as I share this story, you're thinking of people in your own life who have had that kind of impact on you. So when we ask the question, what is, and, and this is kind of a cool picture I found. This is me. I got in Coach of the Year. just wanted to brag about that for a second. But, but here's, here's my Coach of the Year with his arms around me. And I thought, man, one day, how cool would it be if, if I'm the keener in that picture with my arm around Matthew Moffis or David Reishak or a future Coach of the Year at Cook Inlet Academy? So, so what is discipleship? Matthew 4.19, Jesus, he defines it for us when he's calling out these, these men that he wants to follow him. And he says these words, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So there's three things that we see. And if you go back, we went through his story, the story of the Bible. If you go back to chapter 38, I actually got a new website uh, renovated this weekend. Much thanks to Lisa for putting that together. Uh, you can go check it out. Our, I know our uh, iTunes feed hadn't been working. It's back up and running now. So you can go back and, and listen to those sermons. And in chapter 38, we kind of unpack this concept of discipleship. But just briefly this morning, what we want to see from this statement that Jesus made, three things that mark a disciple of Jesus. First of all, it's somebody who's following Jesus. He said, follow me. Put down your nets and come follow me. Wherever I say to go, go. Whatever I say to do, do. It's following Jesus as the master, the Lord, the rabbi of our lives. And then it also means being changed by Jesus. He said, I will make you. And in other words, you're not this now, but I'm going to make you into this. So it's a change. And ultimately it's becoming like Jesus as we follow him. And then number three, it's being committed to the mission of Jesus. He said, go and make fishers of Men. So in this case, instead of following Keener and making coaches of basketball players who can make coaches of basketball players, it's following Jesus to become like him and go out and make other followers of Jesus who make other followers of Jesus who make other followers of Jesus. Reproducing disciples. So a disciple is someone who's following Jesus, becoming like him by the power of the Spirit and their word, not their own strength. This is grace. And making other disciples. And this is the process, the process that we walk to present everyone complete in Christ. So what is a disciple? Someone who follows, becomes, and makes other disciples of Jesus. So number two, who is a disciple? Who is a disciple? Who's called into this kind of lifestyle? This is important. Now, again, we're going we're to stick with the sports analogy because that's the, that's the life I, I live. And so we often, we think of pastors and leaders 
and maybe you know worship leaders, people like that in the church, like the like the professional Christians, they're the disciples, right? They're the ones called to do the ministry, to do the work, to win converts. So so we're the players. There's me in high school. There's Jacob behind me. He was on the team. He's a worship leader, so he can be one of the players, right? So we we're doing the job. So what are the, what are the rest of you schlumps doing, right? Like, what are you guys all doing? Just sitting watching us? Well, maybe we often think of, of the church as the cheerleaders, right? And we're just kind of, the church is just cheering on the, the team. Go do it, Justin. Go do it, Jacob. Go do what, what God has called you to do, right? Now, I don't know if you, you noticed this, but in the back, that's actually my mother, right? That's actually, this is an actual picture. This is when she was blonde, right? And mouth open, not surprising, right? Apple does not fall far from the tree. So this is, sorry, that was cruel. I'll, t- I'll take you to, to lunch after church. Um, <laughs> So we often think that we are, so, so, and then the pastor will go out, and he'll play the game, and he'll win a convert, and the rest of the cheerleaders go, yay, Justin, you won another one, and then that convert comes and becomes a, another cheerleader, and you all are just J-U-S-T-I-N, go Justin, right, go fight, well, I know that too well. Um, this is not, praise the Lord, not the analogy that accurately def- depicts what God's called us to be. See, leaders are not players, and then the rest of the church is, is, is cheerleaders. The leaders are the coaches, and the rest of the church are the players. And we're going to unpack this more in the next few weeks. But the job of leaders are, is to coach players to play the game. And not just to, to play the game, but to actually someday grow up and be coaches themselves who can coach other players to play the game, who can coach others. And again, you see the, the reproductive concept here. This is what we're called into. Listen, the activity, the ministry of the church is not just for some spiritual task force, the elite super Christians that are the worship leaders and pastors and elders and maybe some Sunday school teachers and a few deacons. This is every single one of us. When Jesus said, go and make disciples, he did not say, go and just win some converts. Go and and make a few people who get to go to heaven when they die. He said, go and make disciples. And therefore, every single person who is called into this life is called into being a Christian is being a disciple. You can't divorce the two. They're one and the same. And that's why, I mean, if if the goal is to present everyone complete in Christ, and if discipleship is the process of being made more like Jesus as we follow him, then every single one of us has been called by the one who has all authority to follow him, to be his disciple, to be his tall mead. So what does this look like? What does reproducing disciples look like? If our church is as good at reproducing disciples as we are at reproducing physical babies, <laughs> this entire peninsula is going to come to Jesus in the next year, right? I mean, we are, you guys are amazing, right? Exactly, Chuck. So what does it look like, though, to reproduce a disciple? You clearly know how to reproduce babies. It's, it's as simple as, and simple's not easy. There's a difference. The gospel is simple. It's not easy. Reproducing disciples is simple. It's not easy. And I would break it down into these six words. It's I do, we do, you do. I do, we do, you do. Let me, let me explain. So the first one, the first step is you bring someone along. Say, follow me as I follow Jesus. The first part is, is I do. In other words, watch me. Ooh, watch me, watch me, right? You can do the, the whip and the nay-nay. Is that the, are teens still doing that? I don't know. I, my hips don't allow me to fully nay-nay uh, or whip. But 
you say, first, watch me. So, so you have the picture. You, you watch me as, as I'm doing it. But it doesn't stop there. Then it's, it's we do. Let's do this together. Come alongside me, and we'll do this together. And then it's this transfer of you do. Now I'll observe you, and then eventually you'll be doing it and bring someone else to say, watch me as I do, and then we do, and then you do. And again, it's this cycle. And Jesus, he modeled this for us while he was on earth. When Jesus came to earth, what did he do with those three years of ministry? He's got three years here on earth to accomplish his tasks before he dies and goes back to heaven to start the seed of something that's going to be big and beautiful. So what does he do? He calls these 12 men, and really we see it's, it's, it's more than that, but these 12 at the core, and he says, come follow me. And what do they do? I do, we do, you do. They follow him around for three years, and they watch the, the way he prays. They watch the way he heals people. They watch the way he talks to people. They watch the way he loves people, and then he invites them to come do that with him. So as he travels around for three years, these guys spend every waking moment and every sleeping moment right there along Jesus. I mean, how amazing would that be to walk where Jesus walks, to eat with Jesus, to serve with Jesus, to travel with Jesus. Jesus road trips? Are you kidding me? Like, amazing that they have the opportunity to walk with Jesus. And then, what does Jesus say? He takes these 72 and he sends them out while he's still here. He says, I want you to go start doing what I've been doing, what we've been doing. Now you go do it. And then when he left to go up to heaven, he said, now I'm leaving you guys behind. And you go do what we had done together. You see the the process. And it was the same process that we see Paul and Timothy echoing in the book of Acts. So so Paul, he goes on these three missionary journeys. On his second journey, he's traveling around, started down there in Jerusalem, and he's about a third of the way up, and he runs into this young man in Lystra. His name's Timothy. And he observes Timothy, that he's this man who who takes his walk with Jesus seriously, that's following Jesus, and he says, Timothy, I want you to follow me. And so they complete that circuit together. And, 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 and Timothy and Paul, they start, Paul start, Timothy starts watching what Paul does, starts doing it with Paul, and then eventually Paul releases Timothy to go do the work himself. And he wrote a couple of books to Timothy. They're called First and Second Timothy, very clever. And in, this, in the book of Second Timothy, he says these words to Timothy, who he calls his son in the faith. See the, re- the in- intimate relationship that they had. He says to Timothy, you heard me teach things. Timothy, you followed me. You, you watched me teach. You watched me love people. You watched me serve people. And now, teach these truths to other trustworthy people. I did, we did, now you do. And not just teach other people, but notice what he says. Teach these truths to other trustworthy people who will be able to pass them on to others. So just as I taught you, you teach other people and train them up in the manner that they will be able to then go and teach other people, who can then go teach other people. This is the call. This is what discipleship looks like. And I call it, it's 2 Timothy 2.2, so in all of my infinite maturity, I call it the 2-2 train, right? You gotta hop on the 2-2 train, that we pass this following of Jesus on to people who can pass it down the train, to people who can pass it on down the train, and so as we do this, this I do, we do, you do, we've got to think about a couple things, a couple practical points for us. The first, the first part of us is we need to pursue a Paul. So, so who in your life is, is spiritually more mature than you are? Maybe they're, maybe they're older than you, often is the case, but not necessarily. But someone who's been following Jesus longer than you, who has a more mature walk with Jesus than you do, and, and you walk with them. 
And you do life with them. You observe with them. And then you start to do it with them. For me, this person, the last five, six years of my life has been Pastor Larry. And as many of you know, you know Larry. He came here and for three years. He was our interim pastor. And unbeknownst to me, he was grooming me to be in this position right now. I didn't even see it coming, that slick dog, right? So I'm following him. And for three years, it's a I do, and slowly it becomes a we do. And we start every Thursday morning at 6 a.m. before Jesus is awake, right? We get together doing Bible studies. And I'm watching Larry as he's loving people, as he's going through the joys of, of marriage, uh, you know, do, performing weddings for people, uh, also watching the hard, dirty work of walking through conflict with people, taking people through deaths in their lives, walking people through funerals. I'm watching and observing. And he's bringing me alongside and we're doing it together. And then he left me. He moved across the river to Kenai Grace Brothers. And, and now I do. And I want to bring on other people so that we do. And, and you, and, and, but still, once a, once a week, Thursday afternoons, I go over there to, to Larry's office, and I sit at his feet. Metaphorically, he lets me sit on a chair. And we talk, and we interact, and I, and I, and I, I ask him questions. I soak it up like a sponge. Larry, what do I do in this situation? I'm way over my head here. And every time I bring something up, doesn't phase him. I remember back in 1983 in Oregon, I did that 12 times, right? I don't know why he talks like this, but that's what he's doing. <laughs> and so that's, that's, that's my Paul. So who's the Paul in, in your life? And, and then, then on the other side of things, we need to train a Timothy. So who's your Timothy? And here's what I challenge you to do. No matter what you're doing in your life, whatever ministry, whatever you're doing, bring, bring a Timothy along. Never do it alone. Do it with someone else that then they will eventually be able to do it themselves and bring along other people to do it with them. For me, this past year, uh, it's been Robbie, which has been fitting. We've got a grandfather and his grandson is my, my Paul and Timothy. And, and, and he's our assistant youth director this, this year. And so, you know, once a week, uh, Robbie and I get together and, and beyond that, doing, doing ministry together. And I'm trying to just pass on to him some of what Larry's passed on to me. No, no, Robbie, you can't do that Wednesday night. That's actually illegal, right? You'll burn the youth center down. You can't do that, right? Just pass it on to him what he's going to eventually pass on to his little pizza boy there. Lewis, you're going to do the same exact thing, which, which reminds me, parents, you have a child, you have children, and you are reproducing disciples. You're training one to four Timothys, or maybe for the Lloyds and Dixons, like 25 of them. <laughs> You're training Timothys, who can then one day be Paul's, who can train other Timothys. And, and we believe at our church that discipleship is so central to what we've been called to do that we're actually in the process right now of seeking a full-time family pastor who the central role that we're calling him to is to equip or disciple, especially parents in our church, to equip and disciple to Paul their own Timothys. Parents, you are the primary disciples in your children's lives. Now, we as a church, we play a part in that. We all come along together in this gospel-centered community. And we want to train and equip, but it's not the church's job to disciple your children. You're in the front lines. It's, it's our job to train you to disciple your children. We do this together. This is what we're called into. Now, a key to all of this is that this is not a program. Discipleship is not just some conveyor belt that you send people down, you go through discipleship 101, 201, 301, 401, bing, 
you're a disciple. This is not about programs, it's about people. That's why I have pictures of people on the screen. Not the the three easy how-tos. And listen, we don't have to make this weird and, and overly formal. You don't have to sit across the table from someone. I will now disciple you, right? Some kind of weird, don't be weird. Don't be weird about things, right? Just be normal. Larry and I get together, we just drink coffee, we talk together, we share life together, we talk about the Cavaliers losing streak, like what's up with that, right? We just, we're normal together. And we talked about it before, but you just do what you love and you bring along other people to do it with you. It's sharing life together with Jesus in the middle of it. That's a gospel-centered community. Now you might say, well, I'm no Bible scholar. I could never be a Paul, right? At best, I could be a Timothy. But discipleship, and I like this little phrase I found, is the curriculum of life is caught and not taught. This is not primarily formal classes. Those can be a part of these things. But primarily what you're called to as a disciple is to live your life in a way that those who are with you will catch Jesus in and through you. Because the reality is, discipleship is simply sharing who Jesus is in your life. And what he's doing through your life. So a baby Christian, someone who got saved 10 minutes ago, can turn around to someone else and say, do you know this Jesus? Do you see the difference that he just made in my life? Do you know him? That's discipleship right at the outset. The second you're a believer, you're a disciple. And so your, your children, those who you influence, they are constantly watching you and imitating you, becoming like you. It's a terrifying concept. And make no mistake, you and I, we are discipling. The question is, what kind of disciplers are we being? Who are we pointing them to? And who are they becoming like? Which brings us to our last point as we land the plane. We are reproducing disciples of Jesus. And this last point could not be more important. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 11. He said, imitate me. Now notice this is not a period, it's a comma. Because if Paul had just said, imitate me, that'd be the most arrogant thing you could ever say. Hey, just come and sit at my feet and be just like Justin, right? Do everything I do, just one day you might be a tenth of as cool as I am, right? He does not say, imitate me, period. He says, imitate me, comma. Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. When we call people to come be our Timothys, we are not calling them to come. He says, I don't want you to be like Paul. I want you to be like Jesus. As I become like Jesus, and you become like me, you'll become like Jesus. I'm not making disciples of Justin. I'm making disciples of Jesus. That's the call. And even though, man, discipleship, it does occur between two people or, or a group of people. It's, it's in human relationships. Ultimately, we're following Jesus, becoming like Jesus, making other followers of Jesus. See, when Jesus made the call to his disciples, he said, if you want to follow me, (laughs) if you want to go where I'm going, then you need to deny yourself, recognize this is not about you, to lay your life down and pick up your cross and follow me, to give it all up. The radical change that Jesus called his disciples then and now unto. Discipleship is a total commitment and surrender to a love relationship with Jesus. This isn't dipping our toe in the water and just trying it on for size, taking a little sample bite of it. 
with a little ice cream spoon, seeing if I, I like Jesus, if this, is, this works for me, if he actually makes my life better. This is an all-in move. Chips into the middle of the table, say, I'm all in on Jesus. He's my only hope. He's everything to me. All my trust, all my love goes to him. I'm going to follow him. And this is why Jesus warned his potential tall meat. He goes, before you're going to follow me, let me count the cost. Are you willing to let it all go and make me your rabbi, me your master, Lord, and Savior. And this is, this is impossible for us to do on our own. That's why we talked about grace. What God demands, he supplies. And that's why Jesus, at the end of this call to his disciples, right before he leaves, the last thing he says is this. Behold. I want you to observe this. I want you to notice this. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He says, I'm leaving, but it's not you just following me like, where's Jesus? Where did he go? How do I follow him? He says, I'm actually going to send the Holy Spirit. It's better that I go so that you can get the Holy Spirit. And we've talked about the Holy Spirit is the personal presence of Jesus in each and every one of us. We call him portable Jesus, right? Jesus in every single one of us who goes wherever we go. He is the power within us to do the things that he's called to do. He is our life. And what could be greater than being called into this kind of a relationship with the greatest being, the most majestic, beautiful, wonderful person in the whole universe? This is what we've been given. So we bring it back around full circle. How do we present everyone complete in Christ? We become a group of people doing life together, centered around Jesus. And as we follow him, we behold him and become more like him. We invite people to come along with us. And they imitate us as we imitate Jesus. We share this life together. And we reproduce disciples who can reproduce disciples who can reproduce disciples until everyone is complete in Christ. You pray with me. Father, you've called us into something rich and deep and wonderful. Impossible for us, but afforded by your grace. Father, if there's anyone in this room this morning that has never taken that first step to follow Jesus, is not a child of God, has not, has not stepped into that river, and that today that they would make that decision. Lord, embolden them to take a step. Come up to me after the church so we can chat or go to the back of the welcome table and say, man, where do I go? Who do I talk to to, to, to know what, what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to, to trust him as my Savior? I, I've heard these words, but I don't totally understand. Lord, give them the, the confidence to, to take that next step, to ask to seek. As you said, if we seek, we'll find. And that we in this room, we would not just be church attenders and take a, a casual approach to Jesus. He is our all in all. And that we would be covered in the dust of Jesus' sandals. That we would follow him and have the faith to let go of our own lives and say, wherever you say to go, whatever you say to do, I want to seek and obey the beautiful name of Jesus. As he died in our place, rose to a new life, that new life can now be in us, and he grows us to become more and more like him. And Father, we're going to take some elements now that speak to your body and blood and, and what Jesus did on our behalf so that we could be these children. This is not us pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and saying, I'm in, I'm going to follow Jesus, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to be the kind of person you called me to be. No, we receive Jesus freely, his gift of life in us, and then in and through us, he starts to do everything that he's called us to be. May we believe that good news that Jesus did what we could never do. It's in his beautiful name that we pray. Amen.